Robots Radio presents... In 1961, directors Jerome Robbins and Robert Wise brought us an epic retelling of Shakespeare's classic, Romeo and Juliet. In 2019, we returned to the site of our highest-rated scotch to sample its closest cousin. The film is West Side Story. The whiskey is Glenn Morangy Quinta Rubin. And we'll review them both. This is... The The Film Film and Whiskey Whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1961 film West Side Story. And we're also starting the September of Scotch. Because here at the Film and Whiskey Podcast, we're always looking to expand our horizons. So each week this month, you'll be hearing us review a different scotch. But before we get into that, Brad, I think we want to take a second here and we want to talk to our faithful listeners. Yeah, so every week we are able to check and see where our listeners are tuning in from. And we obviously have a ton of people in Ohio and Kentucky and spread throughout the U.S. But every single week, we seem to find this one person listening in from Uruguay in South America. And whoever you are, we just wanted to shout you out and say thank you for tuning in from Uruguay. Yeah, like for a while there we were seeing... Someone was in Montevideo, and now someone's in Maldonado. So whoever's down in Uruguay, like, thank you so much for listening in. Thank you to our Australian listeners. Thank you to the random people that listen in Scandinavia. Like, we are so happy that you stumbled upon our podcast. So welcome in to the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Yeah, it's great to have you. So, Brad, West Side Story, we're talking about one of the most famous, most beloved movie musicals of all time. Uh, And I just want to ask right off the bat, had you seen this movie before this viewing? I have never seen West Side Story. Wow. That's that's kind of surprising because I feel like this is one of those movies, again, just like with 12 Angry Men, where this was a movie that was shown like in my high school all the time. (laughs) Like anytime the music teacher took a day off or anytime the English teacher didn't really want to teach about Romeo and Juliet, they would just show West Side Story instead. Yeah, I I suppose that I just never had that experience. It was never shown in school for me. But as somebody who, you know, performed in some plays and stuff and was in choir in high school, I had all of my friends who were in choir and stuff loved West Side Story. I just never got around to watching it. And the thing is, I I had grown up watching musicals. I had seen, you know, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and Guys and Dolls and, you know, all sorts of older musicals. For some reason, I just never got around to West Side Story. It's really hard for me to kind of classify this in the same breath as some of the other musicals we've done. You know, this is now our third musical. We did two Gene Kelly musicals leading up to this. And this is still right smack dab in the middle of when musicals were popular. You know, the year after this, uh, The Music Man comes out and gets nominated for Best Picture. And actually, when West Side Story came out on Broadway, it came out the same year as The Music Man, and it lost the Tony to The Music Man. But when I hold up a movie like The Music Man next to West Side Story, this has such a different energy about it that it, it seems so much more fresh and so much more modern And it holds up so well, even after almost 60 years now, that it's just so hard for me to even think about it in the same category as a singing in the rain. 
Yeah, I mean, this is the 58th anniversary. 58. Of West Side Story. And so you you look at this movie, and I think what you you keyed in on there was completely correct. This movie has held up extremely well. For me, watching it the very first time, I felt like it was an extremely modern movie dealing with extremely modern themes. And in no way, shape, or form did it feel extremely old to me. And I was really impressed by that. Yeah, and I think that you have to kind of buy into what the movie's selling, because you know, we're going to get into Brad Explains. We're going to talk about what the movie's about. But a lot of people have seen this movie. And if you haven't, you at least kind of know the like the caricature of this movie, which is street gangs walking around snapping. And if if that's your understanding of this movie, then you're going to go into it and you're going to think this is really cheesy. But when you watch the film and you understand how they're using dance, you know, as a metaphor or as a way to convey emotion, once you kind of get on board with it, you don't think that this is a cheesy movie anymore. Like it it really does communicate what it's trying to say very well and in a really modern sort of edgy way, I feel like. Yeah, honestly, I'm glad you brought that up because the first uh, opening scene in the movie, I really struggled with the opening dance scene because there's no context to go with it. Hmm. And that that opening dance scene when they're, you know, they're walking around the basketball court in the streets and they're snapping their fingers and they're chasing each other around like it, it it achieves what it wants to set out to do of saying, hey, the sharks and the jets hate each other. But my struggle was there's no real context around it. It's just these random people dancing around the streets trying to be tough, but it didn't mesh well for me. I was like, it's it's hard to imagine a street gang dancing around being tough. You know what I mean? See, that's really interesting to me because I I feel like I was sucked in immediately because you you have to kind of read the context clues, right? It's like you said, there's no dialogue, there's no establishment, there's no opening crawl like you're in a Star Wars movie where it gives you the history of these two feuding gangs or whatever. But you are plopped down into the middle of the turf of this gang called the Jets. And the way that they walk around, the way the music swells, the way they all kind of like shout, yeah, and jump up in the air, you understand immediately like this is their turf. They own this street and they can do whatever they want. And then when they introduce members of this rival gang, the Sharks, and you finally start to get a sense of what the rivalry between them looks like. You sense the threat. You sense the tension between the two groups. I thought that whole sequence, that opening sort of ballet was done extremely well. Yeah, I think that the, the our weekly Instagram post this week should be you jumping up in the air like a jet and going, yeah, I'm just going to Photoshop both of our faces onto, you know, the jets. <laughs> as long as you don't make me uh, riff. Oh, man. Oh, I can't wait to get into that. All right. So let's take a step <laughs> back here for just a second. Uh, we'll talk about kind of the history of this movie. So. You know, like I mentioned earlier, West Side Story came from Broadway. It debuted in 1957. Music by Leonard Bernstein. Lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. Sondheim has become one of the most famous lyricists in history. Uh, He was only 25 when he worked on this Broadway show. And it made the transition uh, to screen four years later. And they had brought along Jerome Robbins to direct this movie. Now, Robbins was a choreographer and a director on Broadway, and so he was kind of making his transition to film as well. And partway through the movie, Robbins basically got fired or he got punished enough that they brought in a second director, Robert Wise. 
And Robert Wise, I feel like, is a really unsung hero of uh, this era of movie making. Wise had had like a huge, really long history. He was actually Orson Welles' editor for a long time, and he edited Citizen Kane. So, so like this guy has extensive history and then he starts making movies and he uh, he made a really iconic horror movie. He makes West Side Story. A few years after this, he makes Sound of Music. Robert Wise has like a fantastic resume, but no one really knows who he is. But I find that the combination of these two sort of edgy top of their game geniuses behind the camera may makes every bit of this film as close to perfection as it can possibly be from a filmmaking standpoint. Yeah, I was I was very impressed with the direction of this movie and with the cinematography of this movie. I feel like the camera work is extremely smooth throughout this film in a way that you don't always see in older musicals. Uh, I, I really was impressed. It kind of reminded me of the sound of music and the kind of the nice, long, smooth shots that you got in that one. And yet at the same time, they know exactly when to move the movie forward. There's really hard cuts in between scenes. There's not a lot of like fade outs or dissolves in between scenes. There's really interesting sort of experimental like colorization going on sometimes to transition between scenes. And what I really love, though, is that so much of this movie is shot on location and they really use the backdrop of New York City as an actual backdrop, like in that opening ballet sequence, one of my favorite shots in the movie is when three of the shark gang are dancing onto frame and behind them, you don't actually see any sky or anything. It's a building and it's just the face of this building covered in windows. And that's the backdrop of the shot. And they find these fantastic framing devices for these shots that they put in the movie. And the use of color is fantastic. And I find that when I watch this movie, I kind of geek out from a movie nerd standpoint. And I had never really thought about how well made this movie was. But every single shot in this movie is composed so perfectly. You could draw a line through the action in every shot composition. There's, you know, there's some shots where people are stacked on top of each other or put at a slant. But I feel like you could pull every shot out of this movie and hang it in a museum because it's so perfectly framed. Yeah, I really like that you started talking about color. I think one of the reasons this movie stands out so well is is that they use color so specifically throughout the movie to represent, you know, the jets and the sharks and 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 even beyond the use of it to delineate who is who, everything in this movie just pops. Oh yeah. And for it being a movie about a city and in a lot of ways when you think about cities, you think about it being dry and kind of drab gray dark colors they use that for the buildings and they use the clothing of the characters the costume design yep. to just absolutely light up the screen and i love that yeah definitely so maybe this is a good point for us to transition into our favorite segment brad explains now we've talked about the beginning of the movie which is this wordless sort of ballet sequence that you get that introduces the fact there are these two warring gangs on the west side of Manhattan, but there's more story to it than that. So, Brad, why don't you walk us through the plot of West Side Story? Yeah, I, I'd really love to walk you through, you know, step by step each part of the movie. But before I do that, I'll just say, you know, three words. Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, that's pretty much all you need to know. This movie is an updated version of Romeo and Juliet, where they take it and they transpose it onto late 1950s New York City. Yeah, I, I, 
as much as I would love to do a nice long Brad Explains, if you don't know the story of Romeo and Juliet, then I, I don't know what I can do for right, you. Right, <laughs> right. It really is. I mean, and that's not just, oh, we see parallels to it the way we see parallels to like Hamlet in uh, in The Lion King. Like this is right. literally Romeo and Juliet. There's there are two families or there's two gangs that are fighting. And these are these star-crossed young lovers who have a tragic romance. And that's the movie. Yep. And it's beautiful. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that stood out for me about this movie was how incredibly sad it was. I, I was not expecting that going into the film mm. because the, the movie takes you into so many happy, fun, you know, kind of happy-go-lucky uh, areas that the overall story of the movie is extremely sad. It's extremely depressing. And, and you get to the end of the movie and you're just you're left with this emotional dissonance of the uplifting aspect of all the songs and the brightness of the clothing and the colors and and the music is just flowing and it keeps you going. And yet it's an incredibly sad story about two young lovers that are torn apart by hate and by this feud between two families. Yeah, definitely. One of the things that I really have, have always appreciated about this movie, and I think it gets a bad rap, is that people look at it and they think it's cheesy. And we already talked about, you know, like the snapping down the street thing. But, you know, they also refer to each other in language that we don't use anymore. And it's this stylized, like, calling each other daddy-o and things like that. But you have to remember, first of all, like, they couldn't swear in movies back then. At least not to the extent that we can swear now. And so they're doing these really inventive things with the way the characters talk. We challenge you to a rumble. All out, once and for all, except... On what terms? Whatever terms you're calling. You cross the line once too often. You started it. Who jumped Baby John this afternoon? Who jumped me the first day I moved here? Who asked you to move here? Who asked you? Who were you wanted? Back where you came from. Spix. Mick. What? But if you look deeper than just the way they talk, I've always been impressed by how much attention to realism this movie actually brings. You know, like that that opening sequence we keep going back to, that it, the ballet sequence ends by the cops coming to break up this fight that's happening. And after the fight happens, the cops are standing there kind of interrogating both sides. And if you watch the actors, they're all breathing really heavy and their shoulders are going up and down and they're out of breath. And I love that there was that much attention to detail that they even followed it up scene to scene to make sure that you're getting the sense that these guys were just beating the snot out of each other. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I noticed that at the end of the dance sequence when Iceman is telling them all to be cool yeah. and they end up dancing in the parking garage. And then at the very end, they, they almost like pose for a group photo. <laughs> right. And, and, and you see them, they're all like kind of huffing and puffing a little bit and trying, trying to hold still, but they can't cause they've, they've been dancing so much. Yeah. And I, I, for some reason that really stuck with me. Part of me wonders how much that was a directorial decision to make the scenes have more continuity and part of me wonders how much Jerome Robbins was just pushing these people because like you hear these horror stories that come out of the set where like people are dancing so hard joints are coming out of place and people are bleeding through their shoes and apparently somebody like bit through their lip with their tooth like their tooth came <laughs> through their lip things like that so oh my god yeah yeah so I mean maybe it was just that they were capturing what actually happened after they all finished dancing and they had you know they needed oxygen yeah, I think maybe when, uh, spoiler alert, people get stabbed, maybe they were thinking about stabbing, you know, Jerome Robbins, and that's why it was so passionate. <laughs> yeah, definitely. 
All right. So we've said that this is an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. And so maybe we should kind of get into our main characters and the actors behind them. So in this movie, the characters are not called Romeo and Juliet. They're called Tony and Maria. And Tony is played by a guy named Richard Bamer. And Maria is played by a much more famous actress, Natalie Wood. Brad, what did you think of the two leads and their performances? Man, I absolutely loved Richard Bamer as well as Natalie Wood. They brought such a youthful exuberance to their roles. I was absolutely captivated every single time that they were on the screen. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. I really appreciated both of them as well. I do think I liked Richard Bamer better as an actor than Natalie Wood. Natalie Wood's one of those actresses that was really popular, but critics never really liked her or thought she was that good of an actress. And I watched these two, you know, these two characters, and I think that part of it is the fact that in musicals, this is almost always the case. The lead characters are always the most bland characters. And you see it, especially in these sort of literary adaptations or movies that are based on like fairy tales. You know, if you go to Beauty and the Beast, that became a Broadway play. Nobody wants to play the Beast. Like the Beast is kind of a lame character to play. Everybody wants to play any any other supporting character. If you watch The Little Mermaid, like Ariel's kind of a lame character. The Prince is even more lame. You want to be Sebastian. And I think that it's the same case in West Side Story where the supporting characters just bring so much more color and vibrancy to the movie. But we read back onto the actors, I think, the lameness of their characters. And I actually think both actors do a really good job here. It's just that they're not given as much to do. That's really interesting. I I don't I, I agree with what you're saying about, you know, the Disney movies you mentioned. But in this movie, I, I really think that especially Tony is given a lot of material to work with, and I think he shows a lot of emotional range. Um, moving, you know, from scene to scene that I I thought was really impressive. Yeah, I was very impressed by Richard Bamer's performance. And Tony does get a couple show stopping numbers. One of my favorite songs in the whole musical is his song Maria. And it's a song that a lot of people and it's a very famous Broadway song. But all he's asked to do as an actor is literally walk in front of like a rear projection back like there's a green screen behind him and they're like fading in and out between the streets that he's on. And then he's like wandering down the street singing to nothing about this girl, Maria, and he still sells it, which is a really hard thing to do because he's not acting with anyone else in that scene. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I totally agree with you, but I don't know if I also totally disagree with you. So, sure. All right. <laughs> so in the course of the movie, we find out that Tony had been the leader of this gang called the Jets for a long time. And then for whatever reason, he got a job. I don't know what's going on with him. He, he basically quit the Jets. But his best friend, by the name of Riff, is carrying on the Jets as the leader of the gang. And they've been, you know, feuding with this rival gang called the Sharks. And they want to get together and have a war council so that they can have a big rumble and try to reclaim their turf. Because they think that these, you know, the Puerto Ricans called the Sharks are like taking over their block. And so Riff's job is to try to recruit Tony to come back and, and help out the Jets. And Riff is one of my favorite characters in the movie. And the actor, Russ Tamblin, who played Riff, you know, he was an actor. Like, he really wasn't a Broadway guy. He wasn't really a dancer. And, and it's not to say he couldn't dance or that he was trained in dancing, but he wasn't like a Gene Kelly type person. And I think that what they ask him to do as a dancer, what they ask him to do um, 
as an actor here, I think he pulls off the role really, really well. Yeah, no, Riff, along with what I said about Tony and Maria, he just brings a youthfulness to his role where he seems so sincere in wanting to take care of his family, you know, the Jets, but he's also just a kid. Like, there's something about him that just comes off so sincerely of just, you know, 15, 16-year-old kid trying to be a part of something bigger than himself and keep these other kids together. It, it, he plays his role phenomenally. Right. And and his counterpart on the Sharks is this guy named Bernardo. And fun fact, the guy that played Bernardo, his name is George Shakiris. Now, George Shakiris, as you can tell by his name, was actually not a uh, you know a latino person he was not puerto rican so they made him up to look puerto rican which would be politically like a disaster if they tried to do that today but shakira's had actually played riff in the show and i think he played riff in the london uh, production of west side story but really? when they brought him on for the movie they asked him to play bernardo and i'll tell you what man like bernardo might be if not my favorite character he might be the best performance in the whole movie. I absolutely loved watching George Shakiris, and he won an Oscar for this movie for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, every time he was on the screen, he he was just like a magnet that drew the camera to him. Yeah. He just had this powerful, brooding persona that was absolutely fascinating to watch. Yeah, and I think that kind of gets me back to my point, which is I don't dislike Richard Boehmer or Natalie Wood, and I think that they do a lot with their characters, but at the end of the day, Tony and Maria, in my mind, just aren't as interesting as Bernardo and Riff. Yeah, I I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you. In a lot of ways, the story is just as much about the Sharks and the Jets as it is about Tony and Maria. I mean, when you think about it, I would honestly say that there's almost equal screen time given to the Sharks and the Jets as a gang as there is to Tony and Maria either together or alone talking about each other. And that was one of my biggest problems with the movie is that for the first third of the movie, everything that's propelling the movie forward and it moves real fast, like it's really quickly moving uh, film to that point is the dynamic between the Jets and the Sharks and the fact that, you know, this rumble is going to happen. And about the one third mark, so the middle third of the movie is when we finally take a hard turn into Tony and Maria's story. And I just felt like I'm watching this movie and I'm like glued to the TV and I'm thinking to myself, why didn't I rate this movie higher in the past? This is a perfect movie. And then we start getting into the Tony and Maria stuff and it just it started to drag like you had the balcony scene, you know, from Romeo and Juliet where. Tony goes and visits Maria's house, and it's the balcony scene into the war council at Doc's candy shop, into intermission, into the dress shop right after intermission. And I thought that that stretch of like 25 minutes just ground the movie to a halt. Oh, my gosh. You're just Bob. You're an idiot. Wow. So you disagree with me. <laughs> yeah, that that all of those scenes I thought flowed wonderfully together. I I especially love the dress uh scene number. I thought that, you know, Natalie Wood was phenomenal in the dress shop. Also, we haven't talked about her yet, but Anita, yeah. the the wife of Bernardo, 
I thought she was absolutely stunning in yeah, her so, role. So Rita Moreno, uh, she wins an Oscar as well. George Shakiris, Rita Moreno both win an Oscar for this movie. And she really does. You know, I'm partial to Bernardo, but Anita steals the show because she has far less dialogue or screen time than any of these other supporting characters. But she makes her presence felt in each and every second that she's on screen. Yeah, but to get to, back to the part where you're an idiot, I, I just think that <laughs> the story... <laughs> the, the, the story moves perfectly from this is a big grand narrative about the sharks versus the jets and then it kind of zooms in and it like hones in on the love story between tony and maria and i i think it's a perfect juxtaposition between the big story of the gangs fighting each other to the small story of the love between two young young people I thought it was brilliantly done, and especially those three scenes you talked about were were perfect. I, I thought they were absolutely wonderful. I, the fact that you used the phrase, it ground the movie to a halt, is appalling to me. Wow. Yeah, see, I, I don't mind what they're doing there, and I understand what they're trying to do. And they, at some point, you have to get into that romance to make it even a little bit believable, because that's the big knock against Romeo and Juliet, is they fall in love at first sight. And then all of a sudden they're like willing to die for each other. So you have to invest some time into developing that romance. But I just thought maybe it was the the songs they sing too. And you know, I, I love the, I feel pretty number, but then right after that, when they have the mock wedding for themselves, I just thought that that dragged on for forever. And I was like, get me back to riff and Bernardo. I'm ready to see this rumble. Huh? Yeah, I think this is something we're just going to disagree on. I I thought that the wedding scene especially, I don't know, it brought an emotional weight to the movie that you hadn't had before, where you sure. start to realize that these kids are taking things seriously, that these kids are like, they have an understanding of weddings and marriage that I, I don't know if you would see in a lot of other movies. I, I really enjoyed that. That's a good point. And we're going to have to wind down here and get into our next segment, which is our whiskey for the day. But before we do, Brad, I want to ask, is there anyone else that you want to call out for their performance in this movie, good or bad? I really, really, really enjoyed the owner of the shop. Uh, oh, Doc. no. No. Oh, he Brad, was so funny. Brad, I literally wrote down, like, this is the whole reason I introed it, was so I could say the actor who plays Doc sucks so bad. <laughs> he is such a terrible actor like and he he has the emotional weight of the movie resting on him for a while like because you know we're going to get into this later but what happens towards the end of the film is you know riff and bernardo are both killed in a fight tony actually kills bernardo anita finds out what happened but she's willing to help maria get away with tony and she goes to deliver a message on maria's behalf and all the jets attempt to rape her and it's this really dramatic scene. And Doc walks into his shop and sees what's happening. And he kind of sends the kids scattering. And on her way out, Anita says, you know, don't worry about it. Maria's dead. Someone shot her. And and so everyone's under the impression that Maria's dead. And Doc goes downstairs to convey this to Tony. And this man who plays Doc is so bad. He just goes downstairs and is basically like, oh, you know, no one's ever going to talk to Maria again. Why do you kill? I told you how it happened. Marie understands. I thought you did too. 
Maria understands nothing ever again. There is no Maria, Tommy. What? I can't. No, no, Doc. Now tell me, what is it? That was Anita upstairs. Chino found out about you and Maria. And he killed her. And I'm like, who is this man you found to play this pivotal role in this movie? He is so, so bad. So I will say, I'll say two things. Number one, I remember the exact scene you're talking about. And I thought to myself that he delivered that line so poorly. I, I mean, it was, it was absolutely amazing how bad of a deliverance that was. But the thing I liked about his character, like... I think I'm realizing I liked the writing of his character. I didn't necessarily appreciate his delivery of the lines he was given. Does that make sense? It does. And I think this might be another area where we just have to agree to disagree because I spent a lot of time wondering if they like underwrote him on purpose to kind of show that these kids have no uh, um, accountability or like adult figures in their lives because he's like the most adult presence they have in their lives aside from the cops. And even he just kind of lets these kids do whatever they want. And he walks in on this group of people attempting to gang rape somebody. And his response is like, you kids make this world lousy. And that's, that's as far as he goes with like punishing these kids or reprimanding them. And I just, I didn't know, I guess I still don't know. Is it the actor? Is it the script that I hate for him? Or is it just some combination of both? See, I, I was thinking about uh, the line when Tony is walking upstairs and, and the doc says something to the effect of like, what, you know, what are you kids killing each other for? There's enough, you know, bad in the world and evil in the world. And I guess when he, he delivered that line, he delivered it with a weariness Mm. that I just loved because I was thinking, I was like, this this man fought in World War II. Like, like he experienced what true evil was. And to come home and to see these kids who don't understand what true evil is, I, I guess there would be a sense of weariness that would go along with that. I, don't, I, I thought that was really interesting. I'm really appreciating how much we're agreeing and disagreeing on. I think this makes for a good conversation. <laughs> I'm serious, man. Like, you know, it, it's it's nice to debate you a little bit. And I think that what we really need to keep the debate going is to dip into this Glenn Morangy Quinta Rubin. What do you say? Let's do it. All right. So today we are trying Glenn Morangy Quinta Rubin. Now, it's called Quinta Rubin because part of the process of making this whiskey is that it's aged in port barrels and port is a kind of wine that is traditionally made in the quinta region and so uh this is a 12 year aged whiskey they've actually since we've bought this glenn morangy sampler that we're working through they've actually released a quinta ruben 14 year but we're trying the 12 year today and according to glenn morangy's website 10 of those 12 years this product is spent aging in american oak barrels that's right. And then they take it out. They <laughs> darn right, Glenn Morangy. Then they take it out of these American oak barrels. They put it into old port barrels to finish. And everything about Glenn Morangy's marketing for this product is that it is. They keep calling it dark, dark and intense. What they said that we should be sensing on the nose and the taste is dark chocolate and mint. 
So I'm really interested to see what this tastes like, because we know that Glenmorangie is not a peated scotch, but I'm expecting maybe some smoke or something to give it that dark character. Yeah, as somebody who has had the Quinta Rubin 14-year, I, I will preview my, uh, my, my selection here and say I'm really excited to try this. Yeah, I'm excited as well. Uh, Brad, this clock's in at 92 proof, so we're not watering it down too far. I actually think that the last Glenmorangie that we had, which is the La Santa, also clocked in somewhere in that range. So why don't we get into it, man? What are you picking up on the nose of this Quinta Rubin? I feel like I'm getting some hints of orange um, yeah. al- along with those traditional scotch kind of smells of, I-, I don't know, that that mulchy just freshness. I think you're right, Brett. And, you know, we have said many times drinking scotch on this podcast that we are scotch novices. Um, and so I don't quite have the language to explain, but you you know a scotch when you smell it. It has this earthy smell to it. Um, and you definitely get that, but I don't have the dark notes. I'm not picking up the dark notes that they said I would. This actually smells very bright, very fruity. I think you said, you know, citrus is coming out a lot in this. I'm picking up a little bit of apple as well. So I'm kind of surprised at how bright this is given what they told us we should be expecting. Yeah. And if I had to score it out, I'm going to give it an eight on the nose. I am loving the smell of this scotch. Yeah, I'll do the same. I think it's an eight as well. It's definitely not as advertised, but it's not bad at all. So let's get into the taste. When you take a sip of this nice, beautiful golden nectar of the gods, what does your taste buds tell you you're tasting? Oh man, that's good. Oh my gosh. It's so smooth. It's it's not as bright as like an Irish whiskey. And that's a word we typically use, you and I, to describe an Irish whiskey. Right. It definitely has that dark smoky character that you get with a bourbon and you know for me the one that i always go back to when we talk about smoky bourbons is elijah craig and i get a Mm -hmm. ton of that in here but then it has that nice scotch finish to it those earthy darker um more savory notes on the taste it's like if you mixed the best of both worlds between bourbon and scotch Yeah, I really think that finishing this scotch in the, you know, the Quinta Rubin barrels, I think it really does give it that, like, nice, bright fruitiness that you get from wine. Yeah. Man, it's good. Oh, my gosh. This might actually be better than the La Santa that we tried. And that was, for Uh, a time, our highest rated whiskey on the podcast. I was about to say, this might be one of one of the best whiskeys I've ever had. So, Brad, uh, why don't you go ahead and stop building suspense and let us know, what would you give this on the taste? 10 out of 10. I'm going to give it a 9 on the taste. Um, I can't pinpoint anything I dislike about it, but I'm going to have to sit with it for a little while to decide if it's a 10. So if I had to say right now, what would I give it? I'm going to give it a 9 on the taste. Bob, I just gave a whiskey... The very first 10 out of 10 on taste in the entire history of the Film and Whiskey podcast, and you gave me zero reaction whatsoever. I didn't even realize that was the first one. Would you that like me to very, would you like me very give a more time. appropriate reaction? Yes, please. Okay. Wow, a 10 out of 10. First time ever. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. I appreciate that. All right. So what are you thinking about the finish on this bad boy? 
Yeah, the finish on this is just as beautiful as the taste. I mean, you get all of that brightness, the citrusy notes. I think that if I was going to get a little bit of chocolate and mintiness anywhere, it would be on the finish. I think you start to kind of grasp the depth of this scotch as you're swallowing it. Yeah, that's for sure. And, you know, I have gone on record numerous times saying that I like a sweeter whiskey, and this has no sweetness to it. Um, It does have some brightness to it, but it doesn't have a sweetness. And so when it comes to the finish, it's not a bitter finish. It doesn't leave a long-lasting finish, and it's not really, really dry, which is something that I kind of expected with the port finish on it. But with all that said, I love it. I love it, man. I'm going to give it a nine on the finish. Yeah, I'm also going to give it a nine on the finish. Which brings us to overall balance. So we're talking about nose, taste, and finish put together. Brad, what would you give it on overall balance? I'm going to give it a nine on balance. Uh, I think that it moves from your nose to your tongue to your to your finish extremely smoothly. There's nothing that's lying to you. Every single aspect of it is very high quality. Yeah. And I, I'm very impressed. That's for sure. Listen, um, we haven't even finished our scores yet. And I got to say, Glenn Morangy is knocking it out of the park, man. Like, we bought this little sampler of four different varieties of Glenn Morangy for like $24. And we're on our third one out of four. And we have loved every one of them. So even the standard Glenn Morangy was really good. Yeah, this sampler has been the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, we haven't even tried all four of them. We're still waiting on one more, I believe. I don't... Yeah, so what? what's the last one that we have to try, Bob? Uh, it's called Nectar Door, and it's the most expensive of the four. We're kind of working our way up in price point here. Yeah, so I am really excited to try Nectar Door at some point. I, I believe it's pronounced Nectar Door. That, that is the correct French French pronunciation, yes. Yeah, ne- I, I Nectar Door. <laughs> So that actually segues us into talking about the price because value is our last category that we score on. Now, Glenmorangie scotches are not cheap. And, you know, generally we've found that scotch in general is not cheap. Um, a bottle of the Quinta Rubin 12-year is going to put you back $57.99 in the state of Ohio. So we're talking $58. That is an investment. Um but what we've also said on this podcast is when you have a whiskey that blows you away, it's worth the investment. You know, we've had expensive whiskeys that weren't any good, and you're paying for the marketing. And when it comes to Glenmorangie, I feel like you really are paying for something that has had time and patience and craft put into it. Brad, what would you score this out on value? I am actually going to give this a 10 out of 10 on value. Wow. Really? For yeah, for the fact that I've had other scotches that cost $100 plus, and I would put this right up there with those scotches. And if you're paying 50 to $60 less for a scotch that I think is of similar value, I, I mean, that's perfect value. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I just, I don't know if I can ever get anything that costs $58 a 10 out of 10 on value, but in the world of scotch, things are just different. You know, Brad and I come from the world of bourbon. And five, 10 years ago, you would never have found a bourbon that cost $60. It just didn't happen. And even now, when bourbon starts to creep up into that $50 range, it's an expensive bourbon. But $57 is really a low to mid-tier scotch. You're talking hundreds and hundreds of dollars 
for certain single malt scotches. So I'm going to give it a nine on value. I think, Brad, you're right in that I don't know what else I would buy over this at this price point. But when I'm comparing it across different kinds of whiskey and I could get, you know, basically two bottles of Weller Antique for the price of one of these, I think that's kind of what brings it down in my mind. And maybe it's not fair for me to compare it to other kinds of whiskey at different price points, um, but it really is. I mean, this is going to hit you in the wallet a little bit if you choose to buy it. So I'm going to just stick it a nine for this one. I'm glad that you kept the score a little bit high because I really do think that this this scotch has so much to offer at the price point it's at compared to other scotches. Yeah, for sure. All right. So that's putting me out at a 44 out of 50. Brad, what's it putting you out to? Yeah, that puts me out to a 46, which means you and I are combined at a 45 out of 50. I can guarantee you at 90 out of 100, this is our highest rated whiskey we have ever done. Yeah, it's going to be really hard to beat this one, too. And even looking back over my scores now, I'm like, well, you know, would I have tweaked maybe finish in one direction or another? But even then, we're talking about, you know, a an 88.5 or something as our overall average. This is a phenomenal whiskey. Glenmorangie is hitting it out of the park. I'm telling you guys, if you don't want to go out and buy a whole bottle, do what we did. Go to the liquor store, find this, you know, uh, four pack of 100 milliliter samples for 25 bucks and enjoy a couple drams of this scotch. It is a gateway into the world of scotch and you cannot do better for a gateway liquor. Yeah, honestly, if you're looking to enjoy some good scotch, spending $25 to probably get 8 to 10 glasses of whiskey out of some really quality scotches, I mean, you literally cannot beat it. This is a phenomenal sampler, and you're going to try some really phenomenal scotches, and if you've never drank scotch before, this is a perfect place to start. Well, that has been Glenn Morangy Quinta Rubin, 12-year. I hope someday, Brad, to join you in drinking that 14-year because I feel like it can only get better from here. Oh, don't you worry. It will soon be coming to a podcast near you. There we go. What do you say we get back into talking about another thing that's aged well, the film West Side Story? Let's get to it. So let's get back into talking about West Side Story. Brad, this is a movie that we haven't even really talked about the music of the musical. We could talk about a number of different songs from this musical, but I kind of want to zero in on a few here that I think will help us get into our larger analysis of the movie. And the first one I want to talk about is the America number. Now, this is one of the most famous numbers in the musical, uh, partially because of the way it's written from a music theory standpoint, like the uh, the time signature and things like that. But we're not as concerned with that here on this podcast as we are what that song, I think, represents in the context of this musical. And it's it's kind of a perk up in the in the context of the musical. Like it's a fun number that comes after some of the slower moving parts. Um, and it's a fun dynamic because you get all of the females arguing with all of the males. It's like a bickering couples thing. But I also think it's a really clever way of showing the different points of view or ideologies that these two groups have. All of the women are talking about how they prefer to be here in America instead of San Juan because they see the opportunity that America affords them. You know, they, they have more here than they did there in a way. And all of the men who are kind of, you know, in this culture, like they're the ones that are out working every day, like they're seeing what it's like 
in actuality, you know, in as a reality in America, you know, the women sing at one point, you're, you're free to be anything you choose. And then the men say, you're free to wait tables and shine shoes. And so I really love how it's an entertaining song, but it really gets to what's driving these characters and why these guys are associated in a gang and why they're angry at the white kids down the street. Because they're just trying to make a way here in America, and they're seeing the effects of racism, like, on their front doorstep. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, because if you had to boil the song down into, you know, the two ideologies, the women are saying, hey, we have more opportunity. And the guys are saying, yeah, but who's going to pay for it? Exactly. And, And the struggle with that is the fact that, you know, a lot of people would say like, well, it it shouldn't be a either or, like everybody should have equality of opportunity, you know, to go to college, to get a job, to get, you know, any job, to be paid the same amount. But this movie really hones in on the fact that, yes, it's an ideal that we all have those opportunities, but the men in that group are just saying, hey, that's not reality. You know, that is not where we are at right now because we get treated like dirt. Yeah, for sure. And and what I really love about it is that they give the other side, the Jets, the same kind of treatment where we get a glimpse into their psyches and what's driving them to be kind of the street kids. And that's this number called Officer Krupke. And Brad, you actually had told me off air that this was the number that you wanted to talk about the most. So what is it about the Officer Krupke song that really stuck out to you? The biggest thing that stuck out to me, I said earlier in the episode that this movie was extremely sad in a lot of different ways, and I wasn't just talking about the Romeo and Juliet uh, storyline. I genuinely was talking about the Officer Krupke song, because as much as that song is a comedy and it's you know it's almost a farce, I I was incredibly sad as I listened to that song because everything they were saying about themselves in 1961. I see to be true in 2019. You know, oh, absolutely. When you, when you hear people talk about, you know, uh, in New Girl, Schmidt would call them the street youths. <laughs> but like when, youths, those youths. But whenever you whenever you talk about those issues, what do you talk about? Oh, well, their parents are on drugs. They need a better social worker. They need a better psychiatrist. You need to put them to work. They, you know, it's their fault. They're just on the streets doing nothing. And it, and it just made me sad. I was just like, man, if they were facing these issues back in 1961, what have, what have we been doing that 58 years later, we're literally saying the exact same things? Yeah, and, and they do it in such a brilliant way because, like you said, they play it kind of for comedy, but it's these kids coping with what they've seen in their own lives, and they're all acting it out with each other. And what it is, is they're basically saying, we've seen it all before. We've seen it when you've arrested us and we've had to deal with the cops. We've seen it when we've had to deal with a judge, when we've had to deal with a social worker, you know, when we've had to go to, you know, the pen, you know, the ju- you know, juvie hall, basically. And we get pushed through this system and you're all kind of misdiagnosing us. Like these people think that we're messed up in the head. These people think that it's our upbringing. And then when nothing works, the final conclusion is, well, they're just no good. They're just rotten to the core. And it's this way of it's really a social commentary. These kids are saying, adults, you just don't understand us. And we've seen the way that you try to respond to it. And your conclusion, instead of trying to understand us, is to say deep down inside you, there's no good. 
Yeah, there's nothing good that these kids have to offer the world. And I really think that you see that in the character of Officer Shrank. You know, he's kind of the detective that keeps on kicking him out, and he he interrogates Maria at the end of the movie. And with his character, you see on a deeper level, you know, when they talk about Officer Krupke, they treat him kind of like a moron. But with 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 Shrank, you actually get a deeper level of like he understands these kids and he just doesn't seem to care. He just assumes that they're all, you know, deep down, they're no good pieces of nothing. Yeah. And he treats them like that. And he treats them with a disrespect that I found really disconcerting throughout the movie. What what did you think about Shrank? Well, Shrank is one of those characters, too, where you, you really have to look at what they're presenting to you, because not only is he a... I mean, he's a jerk and he doesn't understand young people, especially this up and coming generation in the late 50s. But he's also a racist, like the very first scene of the movie when he's breaking up the fight. Who does he send home? He sends home the sharks and he looks at Bernardo and says, get your friends out of here. He's always siding with the Jets subtly, even if he doesn't like them. He really, really doesn't like the Puerto Ricans. And I think that Shrank is one of these characters that you have to look at and understand what they're presenting to you. Because at the end of the day, yeah, the Jets and the Sharks might be warring with each other, but they understand each other a lot better than the cops could ever understand them. And that's actually the one point of agreement they have is that they both like to pick on and make fun of the cops. So the dynamic in some ways is like, Shrank represents the older generation who just hates young people and has no real good explanation for it. Yeah, it's interesting because Shrank, when he confronts the boys about the rumble that's going to happen, which also calling a giant fight where you kill somebody a a rumble (laughs) is a little cheesy. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, but that escalates too. like there wasn't supposed to be any knives at this thing. They were supposed to just fight with their fists. And then you see how both sets of people get so distrustful of each other that they're like, well, just in case we're going to bring knives. Right. Yeah. So anyway. But yeah, so Shrank is in the shop and he's trying to, you know, glean information from the boys and he tries to side with them at first by being racist. And he he tries to say like, yeah, we're the same, you and I, like, you know, these dirty Puerto Ricans are coming in here and messing up our town and you need to tell me so that I can make sure they get punished and you don't. And when they refuse to give him any information, he turns out to be just as racist about them. And and he starts calling them biracial slurs. And, and you're just like, dude, this dude is just dirty. He's yeah, just for sure. really, really dirty. And that's one of the things that I love about this Officer Krupke number that you brought up is it not only reflects like what's going on in the lives of these characters, but I think it's you can't overlook the fact that this was written in the late 1950s when Elvis Presley had burst on the scene and the rock and roll generation was coming up. And this is one of the first times in pop culture that you see a generation of young people who have such a profound disconnect from their parents' generation that to the point where their parents really think that what they're engaging in is evil. And this whole movie is the story of young people basically arguing that older generations just don't understand who we are. Yeah, this movie, I think, it's probably one of the best musicals ever because it's not just great music. And I might be giving a small bit of a hot take here. I actually don't think that the singing musical numbers in this movie are the greatest. What? But Wait, (laughs) wait. Did you just say that the songs in West Side Story are not that good? I mean, I mean, they're pretty good. They're just okay. Brad, this is like one of the most famous musical theater plays. Like, are you serious right now? 
Yeah, I mean, are like you spitting the... on the grave of Leonard Bernstein <laughs> and and preemptively spitting on Stephen Sondheim's grave? No, I mean the the music in it was great. As far as like the the orchestral pieces, I really loved a lot of the orchestra, orchestral parts, but the actual singing numbers, the songs, like they were just okay. Dude, we need to move on, or I'm just gonna. This might be <laughs> this might be the hottest take you've ever had on this podcast, Brad. I. I didn't even think it was that hot of a take. I just you first you say Goodfellas isn't that good. Now you say the music in West Side Story isn't that good. Well, Goodfellas isn't that good. <laughs> oh man! All right, <laughs> let's move on. We got one more thing to talk about here before we wrap up, and that is the scene in Doc's candy store at the end of the movie where Anita has come to deliver that message to Tony. And first of all, it's a really clever setup because at the end of Romeo and Juliet, what you have is this mix-up where. Romeo thinks that Juliet is dead, so he drinks a bunch of poison and dies. And then Juliet wakes up and finds that Romeo's dead and then stabs herself. And so you have to introduce that sort of misdirection into the movie somehow. And they do it in this movie by the character of Anita basically almost getting raped by the Jets. And she's so upset and it changes her worldview so drastically that she says, Bernardo was right. If one of you was lying in the street, bleeding, I'd walk by and spit on you. Don't let it go. So tell Gino that Tony's hiding in the cell. Don't you touch me. I got a message for your American buddy. You tell that murderer that Maria's never going to meet him. You tell him that Gino found out about them and shot her. She's dead. And so just from a plot mechanics standpoint, it is such a brilliant way of introducing that necessary plot point into the movie. But I want to talk about the depiction of an attempted rape in a movie in 1961 involving teenagers like this is really edgy material. And Brad, what did you think of that whole sequence? Yeah, that sequence was amazing for the fact that the so the entire if you had to describe the dance choreography for the movie, I I would describe it as very grand and big and sweeping and just, you know, all of the movements that they make are bigger than life, are larger than life. And so they they do the rape scene in that manner where, you know, they're throwing her around and they're they're using her shawl to like grab her and pull her towards them and they do like a matador scene but then they finally grab her throw her on the ground and they're holding her down and one of their you know compatriots one of the guys in the gang they pick him up in the air you know like he's like he's crowd surfing and they swoop him down on her on top of her yeah and it it, like i said it's it's in the same choreography as the rest of the movie there's something about it that's genuinely disturbing. I, I it's was watching disturbing. this. It is, and I think that's like you you can't you can't lean into the oh they're they're acting things out through dance so it's cheesy because once you understand how they're like they're basically working around sensors by acting things out in dance and once you understand like in the context of the movie these characters really aren't dancing like in the world of West Side Story these characters are actually brutally trying to rape someone. And when you buy into what they're showing you on screen, it's no longer like a cheesy dance sequence. It's genuinely a disturbing scene to watch. 
Yeah, and it was interesting to me that that scene brought the reality of gang life to me almost more deeply than the murder scene when Riff and Bernardo die. Because that that scene was intense in its own way, but there was something about an innocent woman being raped Mm -hmm. that just... That scene was brutal for me. It was almost hard to watch. It was. And that's why I think this movie even 60 years on, is such a vital piece of American cinema. It does something that musicals just weren't doing. You know, we talked earlier about how The Music Man comes out in theaters a year after this. And first of all, this is just a way better movie than The Music Man. But this is not like your go to see an MGM musical and you're going to watch Fred Astaire or Gene Kelly be happy for two hours. This really gets into hard-hitting issues that America was starting to see at this time. And 1961, we're talking about we're right in the middle of the civil rights movement. We're just coming into what it means for this baby boomer generation to come into their own. And this movie, for being a musical, deals with some of these issues better than a lot of films that came out of this era. I think one of the reasons I love this movie so much is because it cuts so deeply against the culture it was created in, but it doesn't do it overtly. Like when I think about a lot of modern musicals that do this, I think about something like Rent, whereas this movie really cuts against the culture, but it does it in a way where you just think they're kids, they're having fun, they're a gang, they're innocent. But when you really begin to take seriously the themes and the messages that this movie brings across... I mean, you're getting into some deep, cutting commentary on American culture, but they don't do it in a way that rubs it in your face. And I think that's why it's remained so popular. Well, and part of the reason that this movie has come up on our podcast is because we are in the middle of production right now on a remake of West Side Story. Steven Spielberg is actually directing his first musical. This movie's going to come out in 2020 as a remake. And... You know, I'm actually kind of nervous to see what happens with this movie. Not because I don't think Steven Spielberg is one of the best directors of all time. I actually think he's probably a better director than than Robbins or Wise could ever be. But this movie just doesn't strike me as a film that needs remade. Because if you watch it in the right way, it's not cheesy. It's not dated. It's, It's still just as vibrant and as vital as it was 60 years ago. And... When you start to look at things like the way it's edited, the way it's shot, the way it moves, it's a very modern movie. And, you know, we just did Catch Me If You Can, like a couple weeks ago on the podcast. And one of my complaints was Spielberg is such a master at moving the camera that it kept all the characters in Catch Me If You Can kind of at arm's length for me. And what I love about West Side Story is that you still feel the emotional weight of Maria at the end of this film. The great tragedy is... She watched Tony die, and now she says, I have hate in my heart. How do you fire this gun, Chino? Just by pulling this little trigger? How many bullets are left, Chino? Enough for you? And you? All of you! You all killed him! And my brother! And Riff! Not with bullets and guns! With hate! Well, I can kill too, because now I have hate. How many can I kill, Chino? How many? And still have one bullet left for me. And you watch her character, the arc of her character go from this sort of innocent virginal girl to someone who's seen the reality of violence and hatred in their lives. 
And I kind of worry that it can only go downhill from here. Yeah, I'm not sure what they're going to do with this movie that they didn't already do in 1961. I mean, what what do they have to offer as far as a critique on society? Like, we, we already talked about how this movie, it pretty much critiques 2019 just as well as it critiques 1961. I mean, they're talking about issues of race, of young people, and how do we deal with them. In, in so many different ways, this movie, I, I guess it just doesn't need to be redone. But they're going to, and I hope it's good. I want it to be good. I think it's going to be better than Cats, no matter what happens. That <laughs> I think that is a safe statement to make, my friend. <laughs> All right, Brad. So if you had to give this movie a score, what would you give it? I think that I'm going to give this movie a nine and a half out of ten. I mean, it is close to being perfect. But like I said, I uh, apparently, surprisingly, I don't care for the musical numbers quite as much as the rest of the movie. And I do think that there are certain things that could have been done better. But overall, if you look at the analysis of culture that this movie gives you, you do not have many movies that are as clever as this movie at critiquing culture in a fun and engaging way. I I think that this movie is phenomenal. I'm also going to give this a nine and a half. And I'm also struggling with giving it a nine and a half because I want to give it a 10. But for me, there was that one section in the middle that just it sagged so much that it took the rest of the film around it down just a hair for me. But this movie is so different from every other musical that we're probably going to watch on this podcast that it's it's hard for me to not give it a 10 because it is a unique piece of movie making. And I honestly think if you're not ranking this right there with the best musicals ever made, then you're just not watching the same movie that we are. So I'm going to give it a nine and a half. And that means that both of us have given this movie a 9.5. Brad, this is kind of a redundant question, but would you recommend this film? Yes, 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 definitely. And that's all that really needs to be said, which means that it's time for us to wrap up. We want to know what you have to think about West Side Story. Is it good? Is it bad? Does it need to be remade? Hit us up on social media. Brad, where can they find us? You can find us on all of the major social media platforms at Film Whiskey with an E. At Film Whiskey. Or you could give us a call on our call-in line. Leave us a voicemail. We'll play your voicemail and interact with it on air. Our number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that's 216-800-5923. We will be back next week talking about the 1999 film Fight Club. Bob, you know the number one rule. What? Come on, man. (laughs) Never, ever talk about Fight Club. Come on. You just don't do it. Rule number one, don't talk about Fight Club. Rule number two, talk about the Film and Whiskey Podcast. That's right. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. Hey there, this is Sebastian Azaro, host of The Outer World Show. Are you as hyped as I am for Obsidian's upcoming first-person RPG, The Outer Worlds? Then you should join the conversation with The Outer World Show, where we're breaking down the lore, gameplay, and latest news about Obsidian's upcoming game. The show is part of the Robots Radio Podcast Network and is available on every major podcast streaming platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, 
and anything else you got. So let's blast off together, let's build the hype, and let's start those conversations about the outer worlds. I'm looking forward to talking to all of you about it. Thanks.